This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. All right, everybody. I hope that you are doing well. This is a special one that I've held back just for this occasion. Um, wanted to bring everyone back to the real world after the holidays with something interesting that we recorded over the summer. Um, before I just introduce what's going on, make sure that you are subscribed on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Uh, if you need notifications from the website, go right ahead and just make sure you're subscribed. A um, little bit of a five-star rating wouldn't hurt. If you feel that we deserve it, we'd really appreciate it. Um, like us on Facebook, uh, share the post, and please tell your friends, your wine drinking buddies, if you are enjoying the show, spread the good word. We'd really appreciate it. Help spread the message a little farther. That out of the way. It's Applebaum, really important figure in the world of kosher wine, someone who was kind of interested in the scene before it became um, to the place where it is now and made some moves early on in terms of starting brands and investing in companies in order to get kosher wine online in, in more of the uh, quality sense in terms of the quantity sense and has been involved in the community ever since as a collector, as an advocate for Israeli wines and, and associated uh, causes. So really interesting sitting down with him after uh, after a nice tasting, and I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. So we had a we had a few conversations together, and if you remember, um, the first time we met was in my car when um, you were in Las Vegas sitting on an airplane coming to San Diego for the Federation men's event, and then I said, I'm coming to get you at the airport, and then I drove you, we had coffee at Bird Rock, and then um, went to your hotel, and then we connected that evening at the event. Um, and then a few months later, we were finally able to schedule a tasting here at this table in your home, and it was really great. It was Bordeaux, and I think we had a champagne that time. But the reason that I really wanted to interview you is because you were kind of like, now kosher wine is like super popular, and it's like accepted, but there was a time when that was not the case, and you were one of the people who took it from a concept that people would never have thought that you'd be integrating proper table wine to everyday you know, enjoyment and cellaring, et cetera. And through your action and through your persistence, that's something that was able to take place. So what I wanted to just, um, what I wanted to bring out in the course of this conversation is, you know, if you can maybe elaborate on what sparked your interest in wine and how you took that interest and turned it into a passion and then turned it into a mission to make kosher wine available on a large scale um, at, a, at a previously unseen level of quality. Hmm. I like the way you described our, our meeting. It popped up on a, on a, on a Facebook. Uh, I think that you knew I was in San Diego because of Facebook. I, I had no idea 
how that stuff works. So I, had a, I, I learned a lot of good lessons that day. That was one of them. I think that you must have put in like traveling to San Diego. Yeah, something there. like that. Yeah, yeah I just, I, and then of course that coffee that we had was uh, was quite good, and I, I just got a gift now of a, of a container of it. So th thank you for that. I learned, I learned to drink wine actually at my dad's table. My father was a rabbi. Uh, he was in the same synagogue for fifty two years. And there wasn't good wine back then. There was there was no way one could have even considered it practically under today's terminology wine. But in those days, there was what you could at least buy and kind of fake it. Something called Carmel Hock was one of the originals, and there was some other red wines that just touched on you know on what would be called early or the early stage of fancy wines. And whatever was available, my dad bought. We always had big Friday night dinners at our house, people from the congregation and. And other guests and slowly but surely obviously under the Carmel and under the Herzog labels the 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 world started to expand and uh, the work also of course that Yarden did uh, in the early 80s and still still does today sure really started to uh, open up the world but it was very it was kind of slow and it was a trickle and it was very hard to find and you couldn't really really get a, a, a feel for where the industry was going and then the early 90s I met a couple we lived in Sacramento and I met a wonderful a couple there and um, we decided to make a, a kosher wine because we were close to Napa I mean we were in Sacramento Davis Sonoma Napa it was close enough <coughs> and we uh, it took us a year to put the plan together and it was really it was a very small market and the then the 1986 that uh, Cabernet, um, I forget his name. Uh, oh, the the Ghanaian Cabernet. Ghanaian Cabernet. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. But ha what happened was here's here's kind of what happened. All of a sudden, even though the supply was limited and it was difficult to get, there were a couple of grand slams that helped to create the industry. Of course, the most famous of all of them is the 1976 uh, uh, cab from from Carmel. It wasn't called limited edition then, but their special reserve. I sure. Have a couple of those bottles. Right. And all of a sudden, you went from zero to sixty in 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 no time. What the hell happened here, right? And, and so that was a classic bottle. I don't know if you guys were around then, right? Maybe before you were born, but not around, but have heard of the bottle. Yeah, so that bottle, the eighty-four. Was it a fluke? You're just like, this is amazing, or you know, we didn't think. I, I didn't think that way in those days. It was you were able to get gold. It was in front of you. You just grabbed as much as you could and you drank it because who knew if it was going to be good tomorrow? You know, kosher wines weren't quite well known for, for keeping. Um, so you had, you had bottles like the 76, bottles like the Ardennes 84, the 86 cab from, from Gun Aden. There are, there are others, there are definitely others that, that stuck out, but they, those were really exceptions to the rule. So uh, Art uh, was my partner's name. We put together a small investment group and it was a cottage industry. Someone did sales, someone did marketing, we bought in someone to do the kosher, and we found a, a local uh, a wine maker, very good one, Cache Cellars, out of Davis. And after, well, one of the themes of all my making wine is how do you convince people in high places right. to do something they don't want to do, right? Because, <laughs> believe me, as easy as we say it is, it's not that easy. Don't tell people we sell to, but it's not that easy. And getting them to understand kosher, to understand the rabbi, understand the restrictions, but eventually, um, we got, um, I forget his name, but we we got the founder of Cache Sellers to do kosher uh, with us. So it was basically a passion project. 100% passion. We knew we were going to lose all our money, and in fact, we did. Or at least drink your money. 
Drink our money. So the stories, the stories that came out, and the, the excitement and the interest, and we generated. Just recently, I found a folder. We were in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, <laughs> you know, Time Magazine, because this was like a cottage industry. We made grape wine. We made Pinot Noir, which then was not a very popular grape in the in the, in the kosher world or in the Jewish world. And we made I don't know fifteen hundred, two thousand cases our first Pesach and sold it all. Wow. Every, every drop of it. How did people find out about you? That was just the marketing you're doing, or it was the marketing we were doing. Um, there's even till today. I think he's a very famous guy. Uh, the the wine store up in in the Bronx, uh, who sells used to sell more kosher wine than anyone in the world. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember the name, but uh, up in Riverdale. Hey, oh yeah, uh, uh, Skyview. Skyview, good. Sure. So he's a buddy of mine. He was a buddy for a long time. And I came in five days or four days before Pesach, uh, 1991, our first vintage, and sold oh, about 300 cases or 200 cases, <laughs> just picking people that were, you know, buying other wines, bringing them to my corner, tasting it. We made very good wine, and so we sold some that way, some through word of mouth. That was called Teal Lake. Teal Lake. Okay. And that was the first stuff coming out of California, pretty much, or North, like uh, no, no, there was there was Gun Aiden. There was always the Hagafen, mm-hmm. you know, and Hagafen made wonderful wines until they were OU. They had a little bit of a different market, but they made the wines. Uh, Herzog uh, always, what's it called, the Herzog wineries, always made uh, kosher wine here also. Right. But I'd like to think ours was just a cut above and surely different, and sure, surely the story was So it was definitely different. like a garage winery operation, Yeah, but we, the we, first we, of its kind. First year we made 1,500 cases, then we made 3,000 cases. We made a Pinot Noir Blanc. Which got some great write-ups. Wow! In the in the press, sold it all. It was I still have some. None of it's any good. Right. And then we started making Cab and Merlot organic. So again, early for our day. Right. And we sold what we made. Then we had a financing bump, and then uh, the Royal Royal Wine Company had been selling our wine. I know David and those guys for a very long time, and they offered to buy us, which which we at that point agreed to do. They offered once, we turned them down, and then. Two years later, it was time to sell. So after they bought your company, um, at what point was it? Was the brand the brand obviously became very valuable because people recognize you as some sort of a, you know, California boutique product for kosher wine, very elite, you know, high quality winemaking, etc. At what point did that brand transfer to um, where it is today, which I believe is Australia? Australia. It took a bit of time. They didn't do it right away. They let the brand kind of peter out from the perspective of the California wine. So I don't know if it was a year or two later. I, it was in the mid-90s, I don't remember. Um, but they they pivoted must by 1995 or 1996. And they needed, the label was great. We had a very good name recognition. But they didn't want, I assume, didn't want to compete against themselves in their own California market mm-hmm. um, and needed a, a new, fresh brand. So moving it to Australia, we had been a kind of an exciting, interesting uh, story and so it just continued you right. know, down the same path and I've done obviously a, a great job. Did you it. stay involved after that? Yeah, in the marketing a little bit here and there. You know, the, the there were there were a few things that we wanted to accomplish in in, in starting this winery, but there was one thing I knew that if I this had happened that I'd been successful, and that was you go to someone's house for Shabbos and they're serving till like and they said this is this great new winery <laughs> out of California, but someone brings a bottle. And that happened enough times that I realized that we had uh, achieved our goal, at least from that perspective. Did you miss like the wine trade after the sale and after your involvement decreased? Very much so, but I made up for it by just keep buying. You know, all I all I did. I haven't stopped buying since then, and I've had one one exposure to making wine. You know, we've been involved in one other winemaking effort, but 
have worked with many Israeli winemakers in marketing, just just as a passion, you know. Lending your expertise to. Yeah, you know, I have a big mouth, and so that's that's <laughs> been a uh, that's been a common thread in you know getting the word out on these things. What does it take to be successful in the kosher wine business? Great product, first and foremost. I'd say that's the obvious answer, uh, but I, I think, unfortunately, I, I hate to say this, but unfortunately kind of making the wine not not too Jewish in its label or in its presentation something that appeals to more yeah I, th I think so I think that's that's one thing that we haven't done a great job doing and I run into it all the time why aren't non-kosher restaurants serving more of Israeli wine they serve Argentinian and and Chilean and Australian and <clears throat> guys I can, I can do a tasting for you across all of those platforms and our wines are as good and in many cases much better. Clearly not than, than the best best Bordeaux or or the Napa Caps. We make, as a, as a second tier market, we make extraordinary wines. And one of the things that I do globally is do wine tastings. Wherever I go, I'm doing wine tastings. And Showcasing Israeli wines specifically. Specifically Israeli wines, yeah. yeah. Because when you're on the road, point. you're representing Israel. more than just your passion that's for exactly. wine for Israel and, that's and correct the overlapping there and it's a good way to meet people also it's a good way to create a bond wine is about alcohol it's about creating bonds and and it, without a question great Napa collectors and Bordeaux collectors will tell you that these are wonderful wines so one thing is why why aren't we on more uh, on more wine uh, wine menus I think there's a bit of education uh, that's needed. People know what. Why? Why do I have to run into Jews today and have them say, "Oh, Israeli wine or kosher wine is shit"? I, I don't. I don't. I don't understand that. Or, oh, it's no good. Or you don't make any good. You know, there's, there's nothing for us to drink. It's 2017. We're making 40 wines or 50 wines that are 90 or above Parker rated. Right. Uh, we have great chateaus in France. The wines you bring in are outstanding. What, what's going on here? And, and there's something missing. As much as everyone talks about it, we haven't cracked, even remotely cracked the code. Is it that the wine culture just isn't there yet, or people are just in a box where they can't understand that you can have kosher or you can have excellence, and there's no contradiction? Well, it's it's more the latter. But remember, what if you say to someone, chicken, kosher chicken or non-kosher chicken, nine out of ten Jews and seven out of ten non-Jews are going to say, oh, well, the kosher chicken is more expensive, but it's healthier, it's better, you know, and there's lots of... You know, Trader Joe's, everybody sells. Why aren't we doing that in particular with Israeli wines? Is something that is is, a, is something that has to be solved. Not to not to bring a political light on it, but do you think it has to do with the political situation in Israel and the perception? Mm. Or have not, you, here. Not, not, not here. Not not in America. Not in America. Okay. Yeah, but in, in Europe, it's an issue. Yeah, yeah, but it, not in the United States for sure. Not. Do you find that there are a lot of Jewish people that are in the industry that are not aware of how good kosher wine can be? Oh, man. I, I have done several epic wine tastings in Napa. Nowhere near enough. But I mean with the biggest and the best. Around tables three times the size of this table with 20 different Israeli wines or 15 different Israeli wines. And man for man, woman for woman, they walk away blown away. Blown but, but, away. But they're shocked because they couldn't shock. Shocked. Hmm. Yeah. Which are the ones that were the most surprising wines in those kinds of tastings? Do you remember anything that yeah, particularly I, Yeah, I did, I, I did one in one tasting in particular where I took the very best of the very best. And, so uh, like Ketzerin and Yatir Forest, that kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, those and, and the Black Tulip and the Black Tulip wasn't around maybe then. And the uh, the Best Yardanes, the Ben Chaim. I actually still saved the comments. There were 15 winemakers around the table. Yeah. And believe it or not, it was 
<clears throat> I think it was the 2006, but I don't remember the vintage of uh, Yarden Cabernet. Straight the, up. The straight Cabernet. 35, 40 bucks a bottle. Yeah. That was logical for them in a sense because it's made in a very California fruity fashion. And so it's, it, it, it didn't overpower them. They just drank and said, boy, this is really drinkable for 40 bucks. We love this wine. So that stuck in my mind. But even out of that tasting, they, they loved the Katsrin. They loved the Ben Chaim. It's a, you know, someone I really like. And I haven't done it in the last couple, three years, but there's so many new uh, vintages and new wineries out. One better than the next. Yeah, there's a lot of excellent wine. I think that part of the issue that people are facing is that you know you can get like let's say Yard Cab between twenty eight to thirty four dollars a bottle. Um, you know, does a higher end product from the same winery or others justify paying five or six times the price of that? Are you really getting five or six times the price of quality compared to what you might get from a different region? Um, and if it's on a restaurant wine list, that kind of a cost differentiation would really, you know, be a, a hard argument for the consumer. So when I do wine tastings for people with great palates, right. Jews and non-Jews who know French and California, and you put down a, uh, hmm, what would be a good example? You can use a Flam, you know, 2015, 2016 cab. Okay, so... Retail would be like sixty, you know. right at around the sixty bucket level, right? Yeah, right? far is seventy. Let's say maybe it's more. I don't even know. Um, pound for pound, ounce for ounce, those wines hold up against a sixty dollar California like wine, like a duck horn or a something. No, you know. no question about it. Right, and it has the uniqueness. Of the flavors came as similar price. They hold up. Right, they hold up. So yeah, ten percent more. Yeah, now on the margin when you go for. Hundred dollar bottle was really one. Not that there are so many, right. but there are some. I don't know. Pelter makes you know makes some remarkable, remarkable wines and price to performance. People, you know, people who know because I don't drink non kosher wine. Right. Uh, people who know say this is a great bottle of wine for this price, and the region itself. Israel's making so many diverse and interesting and challenging wines that uh, we're ready for for prime time. Is a path. For Israel, going to be making excellent Cabernet and Merlot wines, or is it going to be finding their own maybe national varietal? Mm. The way that you think about you know different regions having their own um, main identifying varietals that just typify a country mm. is that the path, or is it more like well, well, this is like the best third dollar Cabernet you get anywhere happens to be from Israel, or let's say it's Israeli Carignan. The way you think about no questions it. the latter and then you you picked a perfect example the Rakanati uh carignan is just right. an outstanding bottle of wine uh israel today uh, is using huge amounts of pv mm -hmm. and Meitar has a hundred percent pv wine and camp frank right. there's a petit verdot yeah petit verdot right. in this there's um 20 or 30 israeli wineries that are doing cap frank blending cap frank and carignan syrah and pv and these these are fantastically interesting wines that are totally different from what you're going to get somewhere else so tying that back to what you were talking about before um in your winery in california when you had that and starting the boutique um winery transition for the market you were doing organic before people even cared if their onions and apples were organic hmm. and you were making pinot noir before it became before sideways <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And, uh, you know, making unusual white wines before, I think now as a tangent, we're in the middle, we're, you know, in the middle of this white wine renaissance where white wine is becoming mm -hmm. really a thing. And it's not just 
um, as one of my uh, former wine mentors used to describe white wine, red wine without pigmentation. Like it's like it's, it's defective. Like, yeah. No, it's actually so now people are starting to come into white wine in the kosher world uh, with rieslings and Chenin Blancs and all these you know not Chardonnay, not Sauvignon Blanc varietals. Um, so what do you see now with your involvement? What do you think is the next wave in terms of where the kosher wine consumer is going with? Um... Yeah, I think there are a couple of things happening. Everyone is on the hunt. Uh, there's a few things. Everyone's on the hunt for something that they can't get or something different. So the, the custom crush, which has been extremely slow in the kosher world, is, is starting to materialize. And that's you know the work I don't remember the name of the winery that the Marciano brothers are doing uh, oh and um, Terra Gratia yeah that wine is outstanding Marciano <coughs> yeah, I think it's Marciano State Custom Crush I think that we can define that as oh someone who um, rents a portion of a winery and uh, on for a specialized purpose will create a wine based on a certain vineyard or a certain profile um Kind of made to order, is right? That, and that's that a, correct, but that's that not the, that's correct. Except Marciano doesn't fit that description because he actually owns the winery, right? <clears throat> and makes kosher wine and non kosher wine. The kosher wine in Marciano is more of like a, you know a personal personal use or personal passion. Except it's, it's it's grown exponentially. He's selling right. every bottle he makes in the kosher world, to the best of my knowledge, uh, seventy bucks, eighty bucks, a hundred bucks a bottle, and I believe he's selling it. Right. So. There's, there's been, there will be more of a renaissance in either Custom Crush or non-kosher wineries doing more in the kosher world, and we're on the hunt for that here in California in particular. So I think one change is going to be there'll be more. Well, think about what you're doing in, in your world with the, with the, uh, with the French wines. I mean, there's a great growth in that, in that, in that uh, market for wines that you can't get. Totally. Um, you know, I, I. I'm definitely interested in that niche in the sense that, you know, as a kosher consumer, being able to have something that we feel is equivalent to what the the broader world um, is enjoying. So we do have like you know what I call the split label productions. We've had in the past Ponte Canet, Valandrode, those kinds of wines. Um, today, I think the good news is that while you'll never get like maybe the you know the same quality and the same price point. The quality level on those split runs is definitely converging. You know, there's not we don't have these gulfs in quality between what you might have been getting before. Even if you were getting an excellent wine for a hundred bucks, um, the the broader wine world was getting a excellent plus wine for half the price. And that because the market is getting bigger, naturally, you know, those those disparities are, are slowly going away. Um, but what would it take for a big chateau or let's say like a big winery in napa to go the route of saying well we'll just make all the wine kosher wow i mean look at you know you don't go to the store today and there's like two rows of oreos there's the oreo with the ou and there's an oreo with no ou right they figured well we can just do this for everybody and it's not going to be a big deal is that possible or is that do we even want that in the kosher wine world Oh, we would love it. It's not possible, I think, for for a number of reasons. First of all, if it was possible, we would have figured it out already. Lord knows, <laughs> I've talked to fifty winemakers, you know, and and wine people over the years in Napa. Listen, there's overhead. 
There, there is overhead. Uh, you, you wouldn't want to do a bushel wine, most probably, so take that out. Okay. And winemakers are, as you well know, are a particular type of people who are in love with what they do, and they want to be a part of every piece of what they do. They're artists. And in, in a sense, when you do a kosher run, you take the art, you take the, the, the artist can't really put his hand on the brush or her hand on the canvas. You can, but, but it's, 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 it's a process that's removed. I know it from all the different uh, custom crushes or the wineries I've been involved with, I've been involved in, and so to take them away from their canvas for one barrel or two or ten barrels that that they understand and they first year it never works right. This, sure. The tensions are unbelievable. In the second year, <laughs> by the third year, the screaming stops and you kind of get it right. Right. I the, the winemaker is frustrated with his hands tied behind his back. And you know, and there are mistakes that are made, and then the rabbi comes and says this, that, or the other thing. You know, there's there there are <clears throat> there are bumps along the road. I don't want to I want to make sure I'm not discouraging anyone from doing this, but to take away and let's also understand if it's a winery that we want kosher. It's got to be high end. So you're immediately dealing with a, a far superior artist. We don't want to do Mandavi kosher. They'd never do it. But B, it's a, a nice wine. But to attract, we have the Herzogs. They, they make fantastic wines in every category. But you know, ten dollars, twenty, thirty. We don't need more good wine in that space we don't, yeah you don't have to compete with a ten dollar wine yeah yeah because the, the world now the Royal wine company of course makes or brings in wines that are at the higher end but where we have a shortage a big shortage of great california wines in that price category now the stuff that jonathan hashdu is doing is amazing right i mean he's 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 starting to fill that void sure right and covenant fills that void but the market is way bigger and way more bold and way more interested in, in, in higher-end kind of Napa wines. Could you tell me a little bit about that market specifically, like, and, and which direction it's going? Are they, are they Jewish wine collectors that might not appreciate kosher wine, or is it trying to go into the broader world and say this is just great wine that happens to be kosher? No, again, I, th- I, think, I think the first two, it's definitely the Orthodox market, and any, any bottle of wine you can show me that I haven't had that's good, I'm going to buy. I must now I'm not a typical Orthodox buyer, but there's plenty. <laughs> there's plenty of people like me. Believe me, I go around Manhattan. There's plenty of nice sellers, and then and then and then um, and then you have the second category, which is way more expansive, which is just the Jewish market in general, the Rosh Hashanah Pesach uh, Jewish market that we're not feeding with enough wine. Now the Israelis have figured it out. So you go to someone Seder at a high end hedge fund guy in New York on, on Pesach and. Every one of the the hundred dollar, eighty dollar bottles of wine that you have in Israel are on their table. Sure. So now we need to expand it to not just the five hundred hedge fund managers, but to the other million Jews in New York who can afford but aren't buying. So I'd say that would take up ninety percent of the category. Again, Israel's special because if if you have a high end Napa winery that you're bringing into a non kosher restaurant, they can get it in the kosher, you know, in the non kosher form. But Israeli wine, so it's got. Bifurcated. You have the first two categories, and to reach the non-Jewish, non-kosher world, somehow or other, Israeli wines need to get in the hands of the proprietors that are making these decisions in a better way, so that we can have an Israel on the menu, even if it's only three wines. What about the folks who are doing Passover seder's, Rosh Hashanah dinners, um, and will have, you know, let's say a brisket, chicken soup? you know, kosher matzah, etc. How do we take that family and instead of, you know, servicing the Seder with a bottle of Menashevitz and then bringing out, you know, their good non-kosher wine from the cellar for the meal, how do we just 
swap that whole thing out with quality kosher mm-hmm. wines from the beginning. So, firstly, there, there's been an amazing renaissance from that perspective. I bet you that there are more seders with this great Israeli wine on their table than you can ever imagine. Now, but what I think is that there's still another million or two million or three million Jews or five million that could be buying Israeli wine who can afford it, who, who should have it. And, and, and I don't know the answer. I, I, I'm not sure how. Here's, here's something I know. It's true about taking someone to Israel. I go to Israel and take people all the time. The second you step foot in Israel, you're never the same. I would say 97% of the people, 90% of the people who come back see Israel in a much more positive light. And when they read the garbage that comes out of the New York Times, they say, hey, that's not true. Right? And so bringing people to Israel is the most important thing in the world. And I would say that if you, if you drink Israeli wine, good Israeli wine, <clears throat> anything from $40 and above, let's say, you are going to become an Israeli wine liker or lover, but surely enough to put that wine on your Seder. So the, on your Seder table. So the question is, how do we get these wines into people's hands? They only have to try it once. And maybe I've done, I don't know, 100, 300 wine tastings in my time, 500. And I'd say out of every one of them, I don't sell wine, obviously, but I, 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 give, I introduce them to the, you know, to the winemaker. I introduce them to the wine stores. I've sold unbelievable amounts of Israeli wine in my time just by doing wine tastings. As of you, as of many people in the industry, we're not getting to enough people. And I, I don't know how to spread the word such that they can actually get a bottle. Is, is it a social media? Card? I mean, it, it's very interesting because I think the, a lot of the American Jewish scene is, is, you know, kind of spreading out and not necessarily gravitating towards I don't know, like the Jewish Journal or, or something like that. And mm-hmm. you know, so so is it trying to, yeah, to bring it into the main the mainstream Jewish culture if there is such a thing anymore? You know, outside of the uh, traditional world. And especially with, I don't think they call them yuppies anymore, Gen X's, millennials. Millennials. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting idea because the wine spectator ran a whole a whole section. There's a cover article on Israeli wine yeah, about a year ago. Yeah. yeah. And I bet you that Israeli wine spiked after that. But that, I, be, I believe. No, I mean, if it, if it didn't, then there's a problem. Then they were back to Yeah. 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 You know, but, I mean, but, if, you can't be in, if you can be on the cover of Wine Spectator, you don't sell anything, then that's that's an issue. Yeah, maybe out of sight, out of mind. Um, so maybe this, social media is, is definitely one way. I don't know how much money. Israel spends a lot of money on a lot of things. I don't think that they spend enough money in marketing and sales and wine tastings. Maybe every synagogue three weeks before Passover, you know, does a huge dinner or huge wine tasting free of charge and you take 30 Israeli wines and divide it up. We have we have to get this product into people's hands. We have to have them tasting it and that's not happening in a, in a grand scale. The way I know it's not happening is that you don't read anything about it and because the, the Israeli wine sales are not spiking on the export the way they should be. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's like necessarily a, you know, I think that the, the world has become increasingly divided along, you know, various political and, and philosophic lines. But I think within the Jewish world, wine is still a very, it's it's a great, you know, commodity. And I think that people are excited for if it's actually, it's actually good. So it could be a way to actually cross a barrier that other, you know, cultural differences are becoming increasingly more difficult. Years ago, I did a, I was invited to do a wine tasting at the House of Representatives. I don't know, about 10 or 12 Republican congressmen, maybe 20 Democrats and a couple of senators. And the, the big takeaway was that we can talk about Israel in a, you know, in a different way. Completely because, non-political. You know, yeah, yeah, and, and that's, that's really important. That was one of the great wine tastings I ever did. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, you know. Do you remember the wine from that event by any chance? No, I mean, just no. any of them. That's really cool, though. Was I, that in Congress or was it was that? in Congress in a beautiful, beautiful ancient room in the part of the you know the either it was in the House of Representatives side. It was great fun, and I could do it again. I just haven't, I don't have time, but. But um, let us know. We'll be there. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and maybe I'll try again. <laughs> are you are you working with millennials, and are you seeing that there is a, a level of of interest that's unique to that to that generation in terms of just wine in general? Are they interested in wine? Yes, in general, and, and in specific here, yeah, in the, in, 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 in in the Israeli wine in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah, I, I think that we don't have the time today, but there's there's a huge difference between Israeli wines and all other wines, meaning. Uh, kosher California, kosher French, all of those are in one category and Israel's in another. And I, I, I think because there's there's not enough kosher California wine to really make a difference, or some great ones, but to make a difference. In the French world there are, but if 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 you're not if if you're not Jewish or you're Jewish but you know you don't partake you don't partake of kosher wine, I, I wouldn't Israel the wines that you bring in are special for me, they're not gonna be special for them because they can get them and they can most probably get them less expensively. Sure. You take Israel as a category. If we can grow that category, it will drag along with it. Take along with it all the other. Well, that was going to be my well. that was going to be my question. Is is good Israeli wine going to open the door to uh, high quality kosher wine from around the world, or is it you know sometimes a passion for Bordeaux or a passion for Napa Cab? Um, or are they going to say, well, where else can I get something that's this quality that's made in a different part of the world? Israel. You have to break. No, you have to. You have to break the mindset. Even in 2018, millions of Jews say that you can't get good kosher wine, um, and people don't. Let's understand. People don't understand the difference between kosher and non-kosher in Israel. When you when you say Israel, and this is unfortunate actually, when you say Israel, people say, oh, kosher wine, Jewish wine, kosher wine. They don't sure. know. Elder, elder, they don't know the difference between any of these. They know kosher wine. Yeah, or great Israeli wine, which means great kosher wine. Really, that's because when I have to, certain times people bring me a gift of an Israeli wine, and I can't drink it with them, and I have to explain to them. They say, what are you, crazy? We finally got Israel in here. Now you tell me you can't even drink that. So that, that, that conversation aside, if you could take Israeli wines and... and and grow that market, kosher world will grow exponentially associated with that Israeli wine. Is there a future in America for Israeli wine that's not kosher? Well, the market tells you no. Only that every great Israeli, most great Israeli wines have gone kosher. But that's but that's a great question in that that means they're not addressing the non... I thought it was a good question too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it means that they're, they're not, they're not, they're not... It means that we're not ex- exposing. Let me let me think how I answer this. There has to be something unique about the region that if you are not keeping kosher and you're just a, a generic wine consumer, there's something about an Israeli varietal of X that you're going to buy it because you drink Greek acerotico or whatever it is, and you want to have Israeli Marcelon or or you know whatever else. Yeah, but more, what I want where I wanted to go was. That the people who are buying the Israeli wines, kosher or non-kosher, when when you when you flip the bit from non-kosher to kosher, you've opened up the orthodox market. You have not changed the non-orthodox market. Sure. And so the reason that people go kosher in Israel has nothing to do with the non with the with the non-kosher world. Only it just grows their markets. So that that's why people change. There shouldn't be a need if we if we did this right. Kosher Israeli non-kosher Israeli wine. If 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 a, a non-Jew or non-religious Jew is going to buy, who cares if it's kosher? It doesn't have to be. It should be from Israel, and you create that category. Now, obviously, I believe 
we should have more and more kosher Israeli wines, which we do have, because then I can drink them too, and I can pour them, and I can drink them with people. But right. that's a that's a minor point compared to the point of. Yeah. So is the Israeli non-kosher scene maybe like a barometer for how Israeli wine is doing in the broader wine culture, or maybe it's too small to even too small. That that is so small, right? Because remember, most of these most most Israeli non-kosher wine. I think this is a true statement. Or wine that's not kosher. Let's let me call it that. Okay. Right, yeah. Um, is sold in Israel. Sure. Right. It doesn't make it over here. Doesn't make it over here because I'm not going to buy it. And I'm the market. And right. if if you're if you're a non-religious Jew, you most probably don't care. But it does. It doesn't show up on the shelf. Remember the who brings in the Israeli wines? It's maybe it's Southern and maybe it's those big guys. But it's the Royal Wine Company. It's the other boutique people who bring it in. They know how to get the shelf space because there still isn't an Israel-only shelf that isn't basically filled up by the right. Royal Wine Company. No one's looking to make a living by hitting the pavement and selling random non-kosher wines from Israel. Yeah, yeah. It's just basically if you have a certain market or you, you feel you have a certain market, you'll bring in a few cases and see what happens. That's it, yeah. Thank you very much, Yitz. It's been a great interview, great information. Thank you for the history, and hope to do this again with you sometime in Oakland. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers.